You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. Well, uh, my name is Riz. I'm the pastor here at Reality Honolulu. My name is Ryan by birth, but no one for a long time has called me that. My name is Riz, so you can just call me that. No problem. Um, but excited for what God is doing in our midst. We are almost a year old as a church. Uh, October 1st, we turn a year old, and it's just been really incredible how God's moved and uh, how he's created and formed this new community, and so we are expectant for him to continue to move, in, and uh, we're just along for the ride. Amen? Glad to have you guys here. So we are back in the book of Mark this morning for our, our Bible study this morning, uh, our teaching time. So if you want to turn with me to Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 72. Uh, Mark 14, we're finishing off the chapter today. So if you have a Bible, uh, turn with me or you can pop out your phone um, and use your Bible app and find it that way. Or as always, as you walk in either doors, there's this little table that says Bibles. That's for you to grab if you forgot yours, if you don't have a New Living Translation, or if you just don't have a Bible at all, you can go ahead and keep that. Um, but today's message is faithfulness in the midst of failure. And if you missed the fat past few weeks, we actually took a break to speak on and cast vision for local and global mission. Like as a local church, as a body of believers, how ought we, according to scripture, be on mission? How do we be used by God outside the four walls of the church? And if this is your church, uh, if you're th- or you're thinking it may be, I... Please go back and listen to those if you weren't here or haven't heard them. It's a big part of the life of our church, part of the DNA, the ethos of what we want and feel like God is doing. Um, And so us being the church in the world, please go back and listen to that. But we have been in the book of Mark for almost a year. So we've been systematically moving through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, seeing the life of Jesus seeing the story of Jesus come to life. It's like a, Mark has been like a fast action movie. It moves really quick and Mark gets right to the point and it's been really vivid picture of who Jesus is and what he came to do. And today we're finishing off chapter 14 and this month we're actually gonna be finishing the rest of the book and uh, right around exactly our one year anniversary we'll be ending Mark, which is bittersweet obviously been super uh, encouraging and wonderful, and God's spoken to us so much through it, but I'm excited to announce that we are going to be starting a new book, and that new book is Philippians. So yeah, if you know Philippians, you've read the Bible, Philippians is probably one of your favorite letters of Paul, and uh, we're going to be jumping in the same way, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, looking at this letter that Paul picked penned in prison to the church at Philippi. And so we're going to be starting that the first week of October. So get excited for that. But we're not there yet. And so let's read this morning's text as we endeavor to um, teach the rest of Mark. So Mark 14, 53 through 72 says this, and then we'll pray. They took Jesus to the high priest's home where the leading priests, the elders, and the teachers of religious law had gathered. Meanwhile, Peter followed them at a distance and went right into the high priest's courtyard. There he sat with the guards, warming himself by the fire. 
Inside, the leading priests and the entire high council were trying to find evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they couldn't find any. Many false witnesses spoke against him, but they contradicted each other. Finally, some men stood up and gave this false testimony. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another made without human hands. But even when they didn't get their, but even then they didn't get their story straight. Then the high priest stood up before the others and asked Jesus, well, aren't you going to answer these charges? What do you have to say for yourself? But Jesus was silent and made no reply. Then the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated in the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes to show his horror and said, why do we need other witnesses? You have all heard this blasphemy. What is your verdict? Guilty, they all cried. He deserves to die. Then some of them began to spit at him, and they blindfolded him and beat him with their fists. Prophecy, uh, prophecy to us, they jeered. And the guards slapped him as they took him away. Meanwhile, Peter was in the courtyard below. One of the servant girls who worked for the high priest came by and noticed Peter warming himself at the fire. She looked at him closely and said, you were one of those with Jesus of Nazareth. But Peter denied it. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. And he went, in, he went out into the entryway. Just then, a rooster crowed. When the servant girl saw him standing there, she began telling the others, this man is definitely one of them. But Peter denied it again. A little later, some of the other bystanders confronted Peter and said, you must be one of them because you're a Galilean. Peter swore, a curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Suddenly, Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times that you even knew me. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that it's, it's powerful, that it's living, and it's active, and it's able to speak to us. And God, we pray that you would soften our hearts to receive what you have to say to us. And Lord, that you would use this text, that your scripture, your word that was written 2,000 years ago, that you would it would come to light to us that it's for us today. It's relatable, it's powerful, and it's for our own lives. And God, if there's anything we want to see today is we ask, Lord, that we would see your faithfulness to us in the midst of our own failures. We ask that you would be high and magnified and lifted up, that we would hear from you. Pray that you would empower me, Lord, to speak your word this morning, that I would be your mouthpiece for your glory and your namesake. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As a way of reminder, if you haven't been with us up to this point, for the majority of the book of Mark, up till Mark chapter 11 actually, Jesus has been in northern Israel in the Galilee region, near the Sea of Galilee. That is where he has spent most of his time. Mark chapter 11 is significant. It's because when Jesus comes to Jerusalem, 
in, that, in this triumphal entry, and he's recognized as king. Well, at least for some people, he is. And, and since then, since Mark chapter 11 up till Mark chapter 14 now, he's been in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is the center of Judaism. It's where everyone would travel to to celebrate the many feasts and celebrations. And at this time is the Passover. It's the celebration of Passover, the most, one of the most important holidays for the Jewish people. The Passover was to remember the way in which God passed over the Jewish people and freed them from the hand of Pharaoh out of Egypt. And so each year, Jews from all over would come come to remember and to celebrate and to worship the God that had saved them. And it was so, just the way, in the same way we worship now, it was to remind us who God is and who we are in him and to give us encouragement for what's next. If God did that then, he can do it now. And so at this time, Jesus has been interacting with the Sanhedrin most of the time. The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, these are like the religious police of the time. And they're having a lot of disagreements, a lot of, a lot of stuff's happening. It's been a tense time in Jerusalem with Jesus. But it's culminated first with the Last Supper, the Passover meal. We saw that just, just a few weeks ago. The Passover meal, where Jesus sat down with his disciples and he instituted communion, right? The, the, thing, the same thing we have every time we gather. It's bread and it's juice and it's remembering what Jesus did on the cross. It's a way to remember his sacrifice. And if you were here a few weeks ago with Pastor Britt when he taught, he spoke of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, which was just outside the city, across the Kidron Valley, and it was the famous crushing of the will that happened. That three times he came before the Father on the eve of the crucifixion, and he said, God, if there's any way that this cup can pass for me, speaking of the cross, then, then please do it, but not my will, but your will be done. So all this is happening in the Garden of Gethsemane, what we see is Judas's plan of betrayal comes to pass, and people come for Jesus, and Jesus is arrested. That is where we pick up today. On the eve of the crucifixion, on the eve of Passover, Jesus is taken away, and he's taken away to be questioned. He's to be questioned by the high priests and his, and his followers, and what we see is not only we see Jesus on trial before the Sanhedrin, but we also see the response of his closest disciple, specifically Peter. So what happens in our text today, in light of all that I just said, is that these soldiers from the Garden of Gethsemane take him back in the city of Jerusalem to the, the house of the high priest. The high priest was the most powerful Jewish leader of the time. This guy was the head of the Sanhedrin. He was the head of the 71-member Sanhedrin, which made up of scribes, Pharisees, and Sadducees. You hear about these guys in the Gospels all the time. They're the religious police that are always coming against Jesus. They're always trying to find something wrong with him. But what happens is, is they convene for a special night session, right? The Garden of Gethsemane story is, is right before, it's chronological order to what's happening right now. And so they arrest Jesus in the garden. They take him to the high priest's house. The whole council gathers and they're counseling 
they're meeting to put Jesus on trial to find fault once and for all. And they're doing this so that they can gather enough evidence to take him to the Roman government at the time, Pontius Pilate. We'll see that next week. These guys don't necessarily have any political power, but they have religious power. They have social power. And so if they can find fault in him, they can bring Jesus to the Romans and thus be killed for what he's done. So that's why we, what we see happening tonight. And this trial that goes on, as we just read, isn't going that well. There's witnesses that are testifying against Jesus and their stories aren't lining up. They can't agree on anything and it's not going that well. And so the high priest at the time takes it into his own hand to, own hands, excuse me, to interrogate Jesus. Nothing's working. It's not going well. There's a special council held. Nothing's being brought against Jesus. And he says, stop. Jesus, are you the blessed one? Are you the blessed one? And when he says that, when he asks him point blank in verse 61, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? That, that idea of blessed one, that literal phrase there is a title for God. We see it in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and Psalm chapter 2. What the high priest was asking Jesus was, are you God? Are you the Messiah? Let's stop everything and you need to answer that question. And what does Jesus said? He says, I am. He says, I am who you say that I am. I am God. I'm the son of God. I'm the Messiah. If you know any of the story any of the book of Mark, Jesus has always kept this kind of under wraps. He's always told people like, don't tell anyone I'm this. Don't, don't say that. It hasn't been the time yet, but now is the time. And Jesus doesn't hold back or cower, but he stands up and he speaks out clearly testifying concerning who he is. And he knows it will seal his fate. He knows what it'll do but he does it anyway because he knows he has to. The crowd gasps because his response is a combination of Daniel 7 and Psalm 110 claiming his deity and identity as the Messiah and God's son. I mean, he just wrote his death note. In that moment, right then and there, it's over. One commentator on the book of Mark, Daniel Aiken, says this, he says, Jesus' words set the high priest off in an uproar of self-righteous indignation. As far as they are concerned, Jesus had condemned himself with his own words. The high priest rules he is guilty of blasphemy, a capital offense, and first says that no other witnesses are needed, and second asks what the verdict of the council will be, and they all condemned him to be deserving of death. That's what happens. There's no more witnesses that are asked. There's no more questions asked. He's a dead man. Everyone agrees he's guilty. We're done with that. That's what just happened to Jesus. And they begin to spit and mock and, and, and beat him. We'll see next week what happens with Pontius Pilate and the Roman government on the way to the crucifixion. But that is what's happening right now. And what happens is that we see that there's one disciple, only one, that actually comes close to being with Jesus, right? Judas betrayed Jesus. He's out of the picture. He's the right reason Jesus is here. The other 10 are nowhere to be found. 
They've deserted Jesus entirely. But Peter, at first when you read this account, you're like, wow, Peter's the only one that's sticking with Jesus. He's the only one that's walking at a distance, but he's the only one that's, that's still kind of with him. But we see that uh, it doesn't actually turn out too good for Peter. See, uh, just a few hours earlier in verses 29 and 31 of, of Mark chapter 14, Peter would, would, would make some pretty big claims to Jesus and his disciples. He, he said, even if all the other disciples fall away, I won't. He also said that if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will never deny you. He said these things. He told Jesus these things. And Jesus also said, well, he's kind of said the opposite. He said, well, you're actually going to deny me. You're going to deny me. And you're going to deny me three times. And you're going to hear the rooster crow. And when you do, you're going to know that I told you this. And so there's this interaction that's already happened before our text today where Jesus has said, Peter, you're going to deny me. And Peter said, no, I'll never deny you. And even though... Peter had been one of the closest to Jesus these past few years. I mean, he did everything with him. One of the first disciples on his side, seeing God in the flesh. I mean, he had been the closest to Jesus that you could. And even, even because of that, if, I mean, if there's anyone that saw God firsthand, it was Peter. He declares, and what happens is, is he declares that he doesn't even know the one he had been with. And we see that it wasn't just a slip of the tongue, that there was three specific times in our text today that he was confronted with accompanying Jesus. Are you a Galilean? Are you with him? Are you one of his followers? And time after time, Peter, the one closest to him, denies even knowing him. I mean, think about this. Peter declares that he doesn't even know the one that healed his own mother-in-law. I mean, it's the same guy that Jesus took Peter up to the mountain of transfiguration, and Jesus is the one that saved Peter from drowning on the Sea of Galilee. Right? Peter walked on water, and then he loses his sight, and Jesus pulled him out. I mean, they have been an intimate friends. But even despite that, Peter repeatedly denies Christ. And at the core, he denied Christ in hopes to preserve his own life. It was a very tense time in the courtyard of the high priest, right? They were trying to kill Jesus. They were putting him on trial to kill him. And so Peter, being fearful of his own life, denies his rabbi and his teacher and his Lord. And this has actually become a pattern for Peter. See, Peter failed the Lord three times in the Garden of Gethsemane just a few weeks ago that we read, just in our text right before now. Three times he fell asleep on the job. Jesus said, pray, and he didn't. Three times he, he, he fell asleep. Now he fails the Lord three times in the courtyard of the high priest. Initially, he had failed by sleeping when he had been praying, and now he fails him by denying him when he should have confessed him. Yeah, wind, sounds like I'm in a hurricane, literally. <clears throat> She's kind of hot. Yeah, already sweating through shirt, no problem. <clears throat> Happens. 
So it's kind of a big deal that's going on right now. Kind of a big deal. But for many of us, we may relate to Peter. Because maybe in some way we've done this. Or maybe we have the propensity to also do the same thing when it comes to us and Jesus. See, some of us are here, excuse me, and we aren't sure why we're here. I'm talking about like in this room right now. Maybe someone listening to the podcast, you'll hear this. But some of us are in this room and you're not really sure why you're here because you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus, and all of this stuff that happens in this cafeteria on Sunday mornings, or Christians in general, is really foreign to you. And there's some of you in here that I'm sure that you're questioning, like, what is this place and what are all these strange people doing? I know that when I first started going to church, that was totally my, I was like so weirded out with everything. And I get that. Like, why are these, there's no one here. Like, who are you worshiping? There's no one here. I mean, I was once a non-believer too, with all the same questions. But you may be in this room right now, and your life has not been with God. If anything, it's been away from God, lived away from, lived in contrary to. And so when someone asks you about Jesus, you may may be like, no way. Are you kidding me, Christian? No way. Me, Jesus, knowing him, follower? No, that's not me. That may be you this morning. So you're very much like Peter. When someone asks you about your association with Jesus, you would not associate with him. And there may be some of us in here that would call ourselves Christians, but we may be Peter-esque Christians. Or we may at times, or have been at times, like Peter, in that we're prone to wander. We struggle with choosing Christ over the world or over what people think of us as Christians. Or we may be Christians, but we're not really totally willing to walk in what it means to follow Christ. There may be some of us in here that absolutely would claim and acknowledge that we're believers, but when something comes up, we turn like Peter from Christ. And instead, we choose comfort, we choose safety, we choose convenience. Because at the core of what Peter was doing, and again, I know it was a very vocal denial, and that may not be us. It may not be an outward vocal denial, but at the core root, Peter was trying to preserve his own life by denying his God. And there may be times in our own lives where we deny Christ to save face, right, to fit in, to not cause ripples. I've found that most people are very concerned, including myself, very concerned with our reputation. We are so concerned of what people think about us and the reputation we have. Whether it's fake or not, or real or not, we're so concerned what people think of us, we are willing to do some pretty crazy things to save face and save reputation. This is exactly what Peter is doing us doing right now. And what Peter's example teaches us, 
if there's anything that we can be taught by Peter's example is that even after conversion, believers are subject to weakness and liable to fall. That, that, that we're prone to wander. That is as close as we can get to Jesus. Peter, that's Peter. Can't get any closer. Still prone to wander. And we may be sitting here feeling like Peter this morning. We feel like we maybe failed God in some way or been unfaithful to Christ in some way, the same way Peter did. And that might be really hard to admit, but that's real. It really happens. It really happened with one of Jesus's closest guys. So if Peter fell, then we can fall. If King David a man after God's own heart can fall, then we can. Like, be careful, to, be careful to think that you are infallible and not prone to this. But the thing here is, this isn't the end of the story of Peter. This isn't the end of the story. His failure, his multiple failures in this moment didn't define him, and neither do our failures. You need to hear that. Your failures in life, your failure to God does not define you. See, for Peter, Peter's failure was an opportunity to experience God's grace. It was an experience, it was, a, it was an opportunity to experience God's grace. See, our failures and our unfaithfulness to Christ is an opportunity for us to receive God's grace. See, so often we fail and we fall and we're unfaithful or whatever it is, and we just feel like we're done. It's the end of us. It's not, it's not with God. See, God's grace is something that we don't deserve. By definition, that is grace. Grace is an undeserved gift that we didn't earn. You can't earn grace. You can't earn God's grace. You can't work for it. You can't perform for it. God's grace to us is an undeserved gift. We didn't deserve it, but he's given it to us. If Peter got what he deserved, well, you fill in the blanks. If we get what we deserved, well, you can fill the blanks in where we'd be today. But this is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ, that Christ picks us up out of the mire. He fixes the broken pieces. He restores the years that we've wasted. And he redeems what feels like is lost. Like this is the good news of Jesus Christ is that our failures don't define us. God's faithfulness to us defines us. It's his work, not our work. It's his performance, not our performance. For Peter, these conversations at this time could have very well been the crushing point of his story. And I get emotional because I can see my own self in Peter making horrible mistakes and feeling like I'm done. We've all been there. You could be there right now. You have things in your life where you feel like you can't recover from. That, that you, you've just messed up too badly or you've done something so wrong that you just feel like you can't get over it. 
And then can you even imagine the feeling of hearing that rooster crow the second time? He didn't hear it the first time. He was too distracted. He was too fearful. He didn't hear it the first time. But by the time he denied Christ three times and he heard the second rooster crow, what did it say? He knew, he heard the words of Jesus and he began to weep. It must have been such a deep sense of betrayal and shame and failure and disappointment. Right, Peter would have in that moment knew, I've denied my God and I've denied knowing my Jesus. It's the kind of thing that could have defined him. Like that could have been his story and that's who he was. It was Peter, the one who denied Christ. And the thing is, we struggle with the very same thing. The choices we've made in the past or even the present whether they be bad or shameful or hard or horrible, many times can dictate and direct our lives. But it doesn't have to be that way. And it shouldn't be that way. I want to tell you the rest of Peter's story. If you leave it at that, it's a bad story. But the thing is, is that Jesus didn't turn his back on Peter. He didn't repay Peter an eye for an eye. Jesus didn't judge or think of Peter as he deserved. The thing you have to know about Jesus is just because we treat Christ one way, don't think for a moment it changes his character towards us. Like just because we've neglected Christ doesn't mean that he's going to neglect us. Our actions do not sway Jesus. God by nature is immutable. He's unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his love for us is unconditional, meaning there's no condition to it. Well, he loves us because we love him. Nope. He loves us because he loves us. This is a radical thought. And one that may be hard to grasp because most of the time when someone betrays us in life, well, I'm talking like a real close betrayal, a Peter-Jesus relationship, whether it's spouse, whether it's best friend, whether it's brother, sister, mom, dad, kid. I mean, I'm talking a real close, tight relationship. Most of the time when someone in that inner circle betrays us or backstabs us or denies even knowing us, it's hard to even forgive that person, let alone love them lavishly. I mean, you hear about it all the time. We live, about, we live in this world of broken relationships. In, our, in your own time, I want you to read on into the book of Acts, the first few chapters, the whole book if you have time. And I want to, you to see how God redeems and uses the same Peter. I mean, Peter is one of the key leaders and key people God used to start the early church. The same Peter. This guy that on a dime flipped on Jesus. Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the upper room at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and what Peter does is he literally walks over to the window of the upper room, and he preaches this sermon, and in a moment, in that one sermon, 3,000 people come to know the Lord. 17 people, 17 different languages 
understand this sermon. They all get saved. The early church is started. And Peter is like this radical apostle that is healing people and being bold and standing before trial, on trial for his life, claiming that he will not back down from preaching the gospel. You, you read Acts and you can't believe it's the same person. You, you, you literally have to say, no, this is the different Peter. This cannot be the rooster crow denying Peter, sleeping on the job Peter. This can't be, and it is. You read Acts, and you can't believe it's the same person. And you know why? This is due to God's faithfulness extended to him, his unconditional love and grace in spite of his failures. That's God's heart for us when we fall. Here's the deal. You need to know something else about God. God's connection with us doesn't break down unless we let it. Let me explain. Usually, relationships break down when a party is offended. Right? When you've, you've been hurt, usually there's a breakdown of connection. And there's not great outcomes. And for a long time, when someone's really hurt, there's a, it takes a long time to get that connection back in that relationship. Well, it doesn't have to be that way. But most of the time, relationships don't recover or have a hard time recovering. But here's the deal. It's never that way with God. Never. It doesn't matter what we've done, doesn't matter how far we feel from God, he's always there. And he's ready, pursuing us, open to take us back. Our junk doesn't affect him. Our neglect doesn't change his thoughts towards us. The story today is a bad one, but it's only bad if you don't read this and you don't read the end of the story. What we see here and what we'll see in the next few weeks is God's faithfulness to us. Because right now, everyone that has followed Jesus left him. His followers have fallen away, but what he does is he remains faithful to his calling and Christ goes to the cross on behalf of them anyway. You guys know this truth, but while we were yet sinners, in rebellion to God, Christ died for us. This is, this is the gospel. This is why the gospel means good, no, good news. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we're faithless, Christ remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. The thing is, God is writing a story for each of us. And his version and his plan and his will is so good. Like, it's so wonderful. And as our creator, he knows us. He knows the world we live in. He knows the plans he has for us. And he knows what's best. You may be thinking, how can that be? Look what I've done. Remember, it's not about what we've done. It's about what he's done. You may be sitting here feeling really down and really lost. It doesn't have to be that way. Peter would repent. He would turn to Christ for forgiveness. He would receive a full pardon. And though his sin was great, he would discover that God's grace for him was greater. 
And I want to encourage you today to turn to Christ, like to admit that you need him and to receive his grace, to ask him to write your story instead of you writing your own story. We're not supposed to write our own story. We're not supposed to lead our own lives. We're supposed to be under the lordship of Christ, submitted to him. He knows what's best. And what I want to charge and challenge you today and encourage you as a brother and sister, as a fellow human that's experienced the grace of God in this way, I want to encourage you this morning to receive God's grace. It's free. It's undeserving. Yes, we haven't deserved it. We haven't earned it. That's the point. It's by grace we've been saved through faith, not of our own works, so we shouldn't boast in ourselves but we boast in Christ. So whether you're a non-believer, whether you're far off from the Lord, whether you feel far off, or whether you feel like you're just like a Peter-esque Christian, receive God's grace today. Come to him and ask him for his faithfulness and his forgiveness and uh, receive his mercy and grace today. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that it's not about us, it's about you. Thank you, Lord, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are our rock. You are the thing we can base our lives upon. But we also thank you that you are a loving father with arms open wide, ready to receive us, even if we've been in the place of living a life that's far from you. I mean, one like Peter that literally denies you, that literally says, I don't know him, I don't believe in him, he's not mine. For those of us in here, man, God, we wanna receive your grace and your mercy that says, here I am. I died on the cross to love you, to die for you, to be with you. And so, God, as we worship you now and as we spend time taking communion and praying and having these few songs to reflect, we ask, God, that we would respond to you, that we'd commune with you in this time. You would get all the, great, uh, all the glory. You're so deserving of it. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.